We're continuing in our series on sin and judgment in the New Testament. A while ago, we were studying the 1689 Second London Baptist Confession of Faith on the attributes of God. And we were in the section on God being a God of love, but also a God of wrath. And we took uh, a break from that to see that God is a God of wrath who punishes unrepentant sinners, and this is quite evident in the pages of the New Testament. The reason we are examining the New Testament, not the Old, most people think that the God of the New Testament emphasizes and is only a God of love, grace, and mercy. But they fail to recognize that though those attributes are evident in the New Testament, they are also quite evident in like manner in the Old Testament. They are there, those attributes. But what people fail to recognize, sometimes because of ignorance, sometimes because of willful ignorance, and at other times in blatant disregard for what the Scripture says, they fail to acknowledge that the God of the New Testament has many passages that explain what sin is in contrast to righteousness, and explain what forgiveness of sin is in, in contrast to the ultimate eternal judgment of God when he punishes the wicked. This is what people not only fail to recognize, they refuse to recognize that the God of the New Testament has these attributes that are quite evident if one would simply be objective, fair-minded, and act in good faith as he reads the New Testament. And that's why we undertook this study. Now we find ourselves in the book of Titus. Titus chapter 1. Titus was a disciple of the Apostle Paul, as is evident in verse 4. It says, my true child in a common faith. He also is younger than the Apostle Paul and grouped with the young men in verses, uh, chapter 2, verses 6 to 8. Chapter 2, verses 6 to 8 where it says, Likewise, urge the young men to be sensible in all things. Show yourself to be an example of good deeds with purity in doctrine, dignified, so forth. This would be the same as what Paul exhorted to Timothy, and he is universally recognized as being in his youth compared to the Apostle Paul. As it says in 1 Timothy 4.12, a similar statement 1 Timothy 4.12, let no one look down on your youthfulness, but rather in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity, show yourself an example of those who believe. Those are similar words to the ones that we just read in Titus chapter 2. So, this is who Titus is, and he also is appointed to stay and pastor, minister, on the island of Crete, as it says in verse 5, Titus 1, verse 5, this was one of the islands in the Mediterranean Sea, closer toward Egypt, uh, not Egypt, uh, Greece, closer to Greece. Cyprus would be the island that's closer to the land of Israel and uh, north of Egypt. But Crete, close to Greek, uh, Greek cities, Greek regions, the country of Greece. That's where he was to be a minister. Now let's re- return and look 
And we'll notice that in verses 1 to 4, we have the introduction, the greeting and introduction, in verses five, which includes the eternal purposes of God manifested in the gospel. That's what's in verses 1 to 5. Verses 5 to 9, qualities or qualifications, characteristics of elders, here called overseers and elders. And then in verses 10 to 16, the duty of the elder of the church, what his duty is, and essentially his duty is to refute false teachers and false believers. That's his duty in verses 10 to 16. His character in verses 5 to 9, and his fundamental duty, verses 10 to 16. Back to verse 1. Paul, as he typically does, starts his letter by mentioning the name. And remember, in those days, a roll or a scroll of papyri or parchment would be used. And the moment the recipient receives it, he would open it and see who sent it. It would be similar to our curiosity whenever the doorbell rings or whenever the phone rings. We want to know who it is. That's the first thing on our mind. And that's the reason his name appears here. If we compare it to James 1.1 and Revelation 1.1, James does the same, and so does the Apostle John. James and John, they put their names right there at the beginning of their letters or correspondences. That is the purpose. It's not Paul boasting, and your Bible may have it in all uppercase letters. That's not the way Paul wrote it, as though he's boasting and drawing attention to himself. That is the English editor making capital the first word of every chapter. We'll see that in Titus 2.1. It says, but, B-U-T, all capitalized. Titus 3.1, remind, is all capitalized. That's the reason for it. Not because Paul is emphasizing his name or anything of that nature. And he calls himself, as others do, a bondservant, literally slave of God. He considers himself God's slave. Not his own slave, not the slave of others, but the slave of God, who is determined to always do the will of his master in heaven. To detract from doing the will of his master in heaven is the very definition of sin. Transgression, disobedience, rebellion, unruliness. But he's not like that, and we shouldn't be like that. He's also an apostle of Jesus Christ, an apostle or messenger sent by Jesus Christ. Acts chapter 9, Galatians chapter 1, recount the basic commission, first call to salvation, and then commission of the apostle. He is sent by Christ. He is not self-sent. He does not self-identify as an apostle. He does not claim, name it and claim it for himself. He is that because Christ set him apart for that. Acts 9, Galatians 1. And for what purpose? Why is he a minister of the gospel? For the faith of those chosen of God. His ministry is for the faith of those chosen of God. To build up the faith of those who are chosen of God. So this letter is written to the church, to the specific church, that is to Titus, 
and the immediate beneficiaries on the island of Crete, but also to the universal church throughout all time. He is writing for that purpose. The Bible is written for the purpose of the church. It's not written for the purpose of the unbelieving world. Though unbelievers can and should be encouraged to read the Bible to know what it says, because faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Romans 10, 17. But its purpose is to be a deposit of the truth in the hand of the church. That's what it is. And those who are chosen of God. Chosen of God. It says of God, not chosen of men, but chosen of God. That phrase we also find in Colossians 3.12. And so as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. In Mark 13, it's more explicit, if that is not explicit enough. Mark 13.20. And unless the Lord had shortened those days, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of those, but for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. Scripture says, the elect whom he chose. The elect did not choose God. God chose the elect. They are the chosen ones of God. Similarly, 22, verse 22, For false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show signs and wonders in order, if possible, to lead the elect astray. The elect are the ones whom God chose. And further, we find this in chapter, <clears throat> Mark chapter 13 and verse 27. 13, 27. And then he will send forth the angels and will gather together his elect from the four winds, from the farthest end of the earth to the farthest end of the heaven. We do not choose God because of free will, because there is no free will to choose God. God chooses us and grants us a new heart, grants us faith, and grants us repentance. And all of that deposits within our heart a desire to please Him and to know Him. And to do what? To have the knowledge of the truth, verse 1 says. We come to the knowledge of the truth. We embrace it, we hold fast to it, we believe it, and the truth is the gospel. Colossians 1.5 says the gospel is the word of truth. The word of truth, the gospel. We are simply not hearers of it. We don't have mere intellectual knowledge of it. We don't have mental assent to it. We actually have embraced it by faith. And it has come to be within our soul and begins to transform us. To what end? It says in verse 1, which is according to godliness. It's according to godliness. The knowledge of the truth is not a powerless, weak, impotent knowledge of the truth. 
The truth is powerful and it produces godliness in us. The more we have of the spirit of truth, John 14, 16, 17, and the more we have of the word of truth, the more it's going to produce godliness in us. We're going to be no longer the way the world is, the way we used to be in our sinful condition, and now we don't desire sin anymore. We desire godliness because in him there is no sin. God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. That is now our goal, but not the false teachers. Remember, we need to keep false teachers in mind throughout because they are the ones who detract from this. They are the ones who deny this. They are the ones who teach the opposite. 1 Timothy 6, 1 Timothy 6, 3-5. False teachers do not preach and teach godliness, knowledge of the truth, which is according to godliness. They refuse to do it because it harms their sinful agenda. And we'll see their sinful agenda here. 1 Timothy 6.3 If anyone advocates a different doctrine and does not agree with sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ, and with the doctrine conforming to godliness, he is conceited and understands nothing, but he has a morbid interest in controversial questions and disputes about words, out of which arise envy, strife, abusive language, evil suspicions, and constant friction between men of depraved mind and deprived of the truth who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. What is their goal? Gain. Sordid gain, as Titus tells us in chapter 1. Sordid gain. Filthy gain. They are corrupt and depraved in their pursuit of wealth. They want wealth. They want fame, which leads to fortune. And fortune leads to fun. Fame, fortune, and fun. They want the fame. They want popularity. Lots of people following them. Because with lots of people come lots of money. And then when they have a fortune, then they can have fun with the money. That's what they want. That's what he's saying here. He continues to preach against money in verses 6 to 10. And in verse 10 he says, For the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil, and some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many a pang. So their goal is that. Their goal is not true godliness. They'll use godliness as a cover. They'll use godliness superficially. They will hold to a form of godliness, but deny its power. Avoid such men as, as these. 2 Timothy 3, 5-7 teaches us. Instead, they are not humbly pursuing the things of God, but in pride, as he says here, in conceit. Verse 4, they are conceited, they understand nothing, they have a morbid interest, a distorted, mangled interest, in controversial questions, disputes about words, envy, strife, abusive language, evil suspicions, constant friction between men of depraved mind and deprived of the truth. In contrast 
the Apostle will tell us, starting in verses 2 to 9, what we should be about. Verse 2, Titus 1-2. In the hope of eternal life, our hope is eternal life. Their hope is not eternal life. They put hope in this world. We do not put hope in this world. We put our hope in the life to come. That's why our mindset is different. Our values are different. Our way of thinking, our way of living is different, ought to be different than theirs, because their hope is in this world and only this world. They have false assurance about the world to come. They think God loves everybody equally. They think God loves everybody unconditionally. They think God loves everybody eternally so that nobody or very, very, very few people actually go to hell. Especially no professing Christian will go to hell. After all, they say they're Christians. But our hope is in eternal life, and it's a fixed hope. It's a hope on faith, uh, based on faith, like Hebrews 11.1. 1. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. That's our hope. This hope is not a wishful thinking kind of hope in the Bible. That's not the way it is. Why? Because it's based on the Word of God. It says, which God, who cannot lie, promised long ages ago. The God who cannot lie, the God who does not lie, the God whose Word is faithful and trustworthy, He announced those words to us, He announced the Gospel to us, and he promised these long ages ago and then manifested it at the proper time. He manifested it, as it says in verse 3, at the proper time manifested even his word in the proclamation with which I was entrusted according to the commandment of God our Savior. Some will ridicule the idea that Christ came into the world only 2,000 years ago. Yes, within Christianity and other religions, world religions will say, your religion is a new religion. It's only 2,000 years old. Our religion is 3,000 years old, 4,000 years old, 55 million years old. They will give a very long time for how long their religion has been in existence. But no, it says, God who cannot lie promised long ages ago, before the world began, he had a covenant between himself, the Father, and the Son, and the Spirit, so that in time, everything would be manifested. 2 Timothy 1, 9 and 10. 2 Timothy verses Chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. Similarly, he told Timothy, Who has saved us? That's God in the previous verse. Who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity, but now has been revealed by the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. 
The same is said here in Titus 1, verses 2 and 3. It was decreed, it was set, it was established in eternity, but it was accomplished in time. And in time, during the first coming of Christ, during his incarnation, he's saying that that is when it was manifested, like it says in Galatians 4.4. 4. In the fullness of the time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. Galatians 4.4. 4. At the right time, Christ came into the world. But the critics of Scripture, the critics of Christ will say, why didn't Christ come into the world in the Garden of Eden? Why didn't he come into the world before sin came into the world? Why didn't he come into the world after the first sin came into the world? What, were everybody, what was everybody to do from Adam until John the Baptist? What were they supposed to do? Or from Adam until the day of Pentecost? What were they supposed to do to be saved? Is there a different way of salvation? Does God change his mind? Does he have different methods and means to save people? No, he has only one way. Because in the Garden of Eden, Christ was there. It says the Lord God was walking in the cool of the garden in Genesis 3, verse 8. He was walking there. Christ was walking there according to John 1.18. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. The Son explains the Father, and he has always been the explainer, the exegete, the expositor of the Father. He did it in the Old Testament from Adam until the Incarnation, and then during his Incarnation, he did it personally on the earth. He spoke through his servants, the prophets, throughout the Old Testament, explaining that he would come in many ways, many portions, many examples, many prophecies from Genesis on through Malachi. And then finally he did. So there's only one gospel. Before he came into the world, and then after he came into the world, only one gospel for all time. Verse 4, To Titus, my true child, in a common faith, Grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. Titus is the Apostle's true child. Why would he say true child? Because he's not his illegitimate child. He's not someone who pretended to be a child of the Apostle, went along for a week, a month, a year, maybe even ten years, went along for a, sh a short time and then defected and then walked away and then fell away and then went back to his old ways and his old beliefs, to his old friends, to his old way of living in sin. He has seen Titus to be very trustworthy, very dependable, very honest, very faithful, and sincere in his faith in Christ and love of God. That's why he is a true child. True child in a common faith. This faith 
is a faith that is unique, but also universal. By universal, we don't mean every person has it, but we mean that every true believer, every one of the chosen of God, has the same faith. It's common to all who truly believe. It's not as though we Christians here can believe and ought to believe whatever we want, and it be different from Christians in Korea, different from Christians in France, different from Christians in Guatemala. It shouldn't be that way. Our faith should be the same faith, a common faith. And to the extent that we are led by the Spirit of God and we are faithful to the Word of God, it will be a common faith. To us is prayed grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. By the way, in the book of Titus, we do have evidences of the deity of Christ. In verse 3, it says, God our Savior. Verse 4, it says, Christ Jesus our Savior. In chapter 2, chapter 2, verse 10, it says, The doctrine of God our Savior. Then in verse 13, it says that we are looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. Who is God and Savior there? Christ Jesus. He's the only one there in that verse who is returning. The Father, God the Father is not returning, coming again. He never came to the earth. He never dwelt on the earth like the Son did. So God and Savior, and also grammatically in the original language and in English, God and Savior are both names or titles of Christ. And further, it says this in chapter 3. Chapter 3, verse 4, But when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, verse 5, He saved us. And then verse 6 says, Through Jesus Christ our Savior, kindness of God our Savior, Jesus Christ our Savior. We point this out because one of the major ways in which heretics deny the true gospel is to deny the identity of the true God. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, three persons, one God. They deny it. They don't think it's important, or they will explicitly deny it. But we cannot deny it. We now turn to verses 5 to 9 on the character, the qualifications, the attributes of elders in the church. If we were to take this list and compare it to the average pastor, the average elder, the average pastor would fail with these qualifications. That means that the churches are sinning and the pastors are sinning 
by having those men as pastors, and even women, because it shouldn't be the case that a woman is a pastor. But for a man not to meet these qualifications, and then to be a pastor or elder, an overseer, a bishop in a local church, would be a sin. Verse 5, For this reason I left you in Crete, that you might set in order what remains, and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. <clears throat> the Apostle Paul, being a missionary, left missionaries in certain places. Titus, he left on the island of Crete. It says that Titus was to set in order what remains. Apparently, there was some response to the gospel, but then there was some upheaval, some chaos, some dissonance that occurred there, and it caused con confusion of such a sort that the apostle has to explain what Titus' duty is in verses 9 to 16. It begins in verse 9. What he's supposed to do to rectify the problem of the chaos and whatever remained there, to gather the church of God and bring harmony and bring them together in worship in the proper way, worship and doctrine. Appoint elders in every city as I directed you. There were Christians scattered throughout the island, and they were without proper leadership. So he needed to appoint elders among the men. By definition, elder is a man, not a woman. And he says elders in the plural. We see examples of plurality of elders in Acts chapter 14, verse 23, and Acts 11, verse 30. 14.23 and 11 verse 30. And there are other examples of this as well. But this in the book of Acts shows that they were appointing, training and appointing them in plurality, meaning at least two in every local church. Verse 6, namely, now what kind of elders are to be appointed? If any man be above reproach. Above reproach. That is, he is not notorious. He is not a criminal. He's not in um, among the people in society. He is not one who is causing uprising, revolts, violence. He's not a criminal, drug dealer, gang leader. He should be above reproach. He shouldn't be notorious in terms of his own marriage and family, as it says in the next couple of phrases. The husband of one wife, the husband of one wife, having children who believe. Children who believe may better be rendered faithful children to compare it to 1 Timothy chapter 3. Verses, chapter 1 Timothy 3, verses 4 and 5. He must be one who manages his own household well, 
keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? We point that out because verse 6 has been misinterpreted to mean that every pastor's, uh, every child of every pastor must be a believer. And with that interpretation, what people do is that they dilute what it means to be a believer. And then they will say, well, yes, my child was baptized when he was five. He was baptized when he was eight. He professes to be a Christian, though he lives like a rebel. He professes to be a Christian, so he's a, rebel. Uh, he's a Christian, not a rebel. Though you call him a rebel, he's really a Christian. They dilute what it means to be a believer. When actually, as we've already seen with a few other examples already, Timothy and Titus, these letters, ought to be compared and contrasted because he's saying in a nutshell in Titus what he said in a longer way in the two letters to Timothy. Not accused of dissipation or rebellion. Dissipation is another word for lack of self-control, indulging, indulging in too much food, indulging in too much drink, especially wine, not having any self-control. Rebellion. That should not be the case as well. Respect for authority. It should be inculcated in children, and it should be in all of us, even in adulthood. But parents who don't have respect, of authority, uh, respect for authority will not teach their children that either. But we all should have this. No rebellion. Verse 7. For the overseer, there's our synonym. He said elders in verse 5. Now he says overseer, verse 7. Overseer must be above reproach as God's steward. Mentioning above reproach again. Why? Because we are stewards of God. We are managers of God. We have people under us in our charge and we must take care of them properly. We must have concern for their souls. If we are living a reckless life, unruly life, not above reproach, then how is it that we can represent God properly to the people? Not self-willed. Self-willed. To be self-willed is not to be centered and focused on doing the will of God. For the one who does the will of God abides forever. 1 John 2.17 But those who are self-willed, it's always me, myself, I, and mine. It shouldn't be that way. It should always be, what does God want me to do? What is His will in any and every circumstance? Not quick-tempered. Quick-tempered. Easily angered. Easily ticked off. Whenever there's a disagreement, whenever things don't go his way, it shouldn't be like that. He should be patient. Not addicted to wine. We cannot have drunken pastors. There are pastors who are drunken pastors. 
That in the Bible is an oxymoron. They shouldn't be that way. If they are that way, they have to repent or give up the pastorate. Not pugnacious. To be pugnacious, some have taken it to be that, wrongly taken it to be, that one is contending for the faith, which was once for all delivered to the saints. The scripture is not saying we should not contend for the faith in the face of opposition. That's not what it means to be pugnacious. Jude told us in Jude verse 3, contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. 1 Timothy 1.18, fight the good fight. Fight the good fight. 1 Timothy 1.18. 1 Timothy 6.12, fight the good fight of faith. Fight the good fight of faith. And then 2 Timothy 4, 7. 2 Timothy 4, 7. I have fought the good fight. I have fought the good fight. When he says, do not be pugnacious for the pastor, he doesn't mean the pastor should never or not be characterized by contending for the faith. The pastor ought to be contending for the faith. But there are two ways in which this pugnaciousness could be understood. One, he's not one who loves to quarrel and bicker. To quarrel and bicker. As it says in 2 Timothy Chapter 2, verse 23. But refuse foolish and ignorant speculations, knowing that they produce quarrels. And 24. And the Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wrong. At the very least, he means that by being, by saying, the pastor should not be pugnacious. And at the most, he should not be a brawler, one who gets into fights, fist fights, punching, hitting, slapping those with whom he disagrees whenever there is some argument or disagreement in the church, whether informally or in meetings with others. That should not be happening. Verse 7 continues, not fond of sordid gain. Not fond of sordid gain, which he repeats in verse 11, sordid gain. What is sordid gain? As we read earlier in 1 Timothy chapter 6, 3 to 10, sordid gain is being a hireling, being a hired hand. Being a goat or a ravenous wolf pretending to be a shepherd of the sheep. That's what sordid gain is. Being in the ministry for the money. Being in the ministry for the millions. 
That's the reason why many, many men are in the ministry. Because it is their way of making money. They are not very bright. They're not bright enough to go to college. They're not bright enough to be doctors, engineers, pilots. They're not bright enough to be like that. They're not even bright enough to to do blue-collar work, to be a machinist or a mechanic or a painter. They're not even good enough to do those kinds of things. But they don't want to be garbage collectors. They despise the thought of being a garbage collector. So what do they do instead? Let me go to seminary. Let me get a master's degree or a bachelor's degree in theology. Let me get one of those, and then they'll, be, they'll call me pastor. And I can be in the ministry. And I can make money and have an easy time, because all I need to do is put together a few uh, scribbles and scratches on a piece of paper and say some things on Sunday morning for about 30 minutes to 45 minutes. That's all I need to do. Otherwise, I have an easy job. That's the way they look at it. They are in the ministry for sordid gain. They're not there for the souls of men. They're not trying to save men from their sins and grant the, or help to grant the assurance of eternal life. They're not there for that reason. They don't care for souls. They're there for money. That's why they won't preach against sin. That's why the serial fornicator, the serial adulterer, the serial thief, the gambler, the drug dealer, the drug addict, the drunkard, the smoker. They are all in their local church and nothing is addressed. And if you address, address it, then you are unloving, you are cruel, you are mean-spirited, you're a meanie. You're not a nice guy. And these days... Men are supposed to be nice guys. World, in a worldly definition. On the opposite side, verse 8 continues, but what should he be? Hospitable. Does he and his wife, do they entertain others in their home? They must be hospitable. Loving what, many times you never have entered the pastor's house. The average church, you, the church members have never been in the pastor's house. The majority of churches, that's the way it is, especially mega churches. But here, how is he being hospitable? He's not. Loving what is good. We pursue that which is good, not evil. In personal holiness and corporate holiness in the church, and even in society. We recognize the evils of society, and we preach against those evils. Sensible. What's the opposite of sensible? Unsensible, or crazy, wild and scattered in thoughts, being somebody who's unreasonable and illogical, he cannot be coherent in his mind and words and deal with things systematically and properly. 
That's an unsensible person. Just. Just. To be just is to be fair. To be fair-minded. Whenever there is a dispute, he calls every party in this faction to bear witness, to testify as to what actually happened. He doesn't just listen to one side. He listens to all sides. He collects the evidence, and to the best of his human ability and the Word of God and the Spirit of God, he acts in ways that are just, righteous, fair, equitable. 1 Timothy 5, 1 Timothy 5, 19. Do not receive an accusation against an elder except on the basis of two or three witnesses. Two or three witnesses must be called not only for receiving an accusation against an elder, but also whenever people say things about one another in the local church. You say that, is that right? Well, who else saw that? Anybody else? Oh, yeah. Uh, John and George and Fred, they all saw it. Okay, then call them. Well, they're too busy to come. Well, then you know there's something fishy going on. Why is it that those other men didn't come and report it along with you as eyewitnesses? That's because something is amiss. So the pastor must be just. If he's unjust, he's being wicked, unfair, devout, devout, devout in terms of a true, sincere love of God and a desire to please Him, to fear Him, and to make Him known to the people. He should be self-controlled. Self-controlled, the opposite of dissipation in verse 6. Self-controlled. Is the pastor... 50, 100, 200 pounds overweight? Does the pastor not have control over his eating and drinking? Does the pastor talk too much? Is he not self-controlled with his own mouth? Can he not listen to somebody else speak? Can he not be patient and quiet enough to listen to somebody else speak? He has to have self-control. These are just two examples of self-control. But self-control in all areas of life. These attributes in these verses are inherent, innate, and having to do with very practical matters of day-to-day life. They are personal and have an impact in the family, in the church, and in society whenever he goes about from place to place. But now, in verse 9, his functional duty, if we may call it that, what is the pastor's functional, practical duty in the local church? And ask yourself, are pastors doing this? Verse 9, holding fast the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching, that he may be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. 
he must be holding fast. He cannot be free thinking or loosey-goosey with the word. It says, hold fast. It should be dear to him. It should be his life. It should be all that he wants and knows. That's the way it should be. Our pastors holding fast. Whenever they speak about things, are they opening up the Bible? Whenever there is a conflict, whenever there is counseling, whenever there is a tough decision to make, does he open the Bible and give verses to the one inquiring? That's what it means to hold fast the faithful word. Is the Bible that important to him? And he calls it the faithful word. The word of God is faithful, and it is in accordance with the teaching of the apostles, which teaching matches the teaching of Christ. What Christ taught, the apostles taught. And the faithful word is contained in the apostles, including Paul. If there is one apostle that some Christians or so-called Christians despise, it is the Apostle Paul. They despise him because of, well, one, he has much of the New Testament, so it's easy to despise him because he's commenting on a lot of issues. But they also despise him because he takes an unflinching, hard stance on everything he addresses. And people don't like that. They want flexibility in theology. They want preferences and personality to have a bearing on theology. They want culture to have a bearing on theology. But the Apostle Paul's not that way. But his teaching is faithful because it is in harmony with the faithful word of God. And then the pastor, knowing this, needs to be able to do two things. Exhort in sound doctrine. Telling the people, this is what sound doctrine is. Now, sound doctrine is both theology and morality. Most people, when they hear the word doctrine, they think, oh, theology. You need to be an expert in theology. Pastors should be experts. Pastors should know. Pastors should be able to explain theology. It is true. And few pastors do that anyways. It is true they should be, but it's not exclusive to theology. Look, for example... In chapter 2, verse 1, and if you skim the chapter, he's not saying anything majorly about theology. He's primarily talking about morality, how we live with each other. And he introduces it by calling it, verse 1, sound doctrine. Chapter 2, verse 1, he calls it sound doctrine. Doctrine is essentially, in the Bible, is instruction or teaching. And teaching can be, instruction can be, related to theology and related to morality, how we live. So he should be exhorting, this is the way we ought to be. We ought to be this way. We ought to be this way. I plead with you to be this way. I beg of you. This is the way we should live. That's the mentality he should have when he explains. Not... Not the casual, flippant, entertaining approach of modern preachers. Next, 
he should also be able to refute those who contradict. Able. How is he going to be able? How is he going to be equipped to do it? If he is ignorant of the scriptures, he's not going to be able to refute. If he does not understand the scriptures, he's not going to be able to refute. Also, if he is a coward, if he is timid, he won't be able to refute those who contradict. Why? Because his knees are going to be knocking. His stomach will be upset. He's going to be anxious. He's going to be biting his nails. Whenever there's a controversy unfolding before his eyes, he's going to keep quiet and walk away and even run away like a scared dog or cat. That man, that pastor, is not able to refute those who contradict. He has to exhort and refute. And refutation cannot happen in ignorance, and it cannot happen in cowardice. Verses 10 to 16. He presses this point of refutation. Yes, refutation. By refutation, we're not talking about bickering, quarreling, getting into fights, being argumentative. But when somebody says something wrong, it should be refuted. It should be stopped and silenced, as he says in verse 11. Must be silenced. Must be. Not if you feel like it, but must be. He says in verse 10, For there are many rebellious men. Many rebellious men. 1 John 4.1 says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. Many, many. Our mentality is typically, there's just a few false teachers, but generally... Every church and every pastor, every pastor is swell, and all the people in the churches, they're swell. They're doing the right thing. They're trying to do the right thing. If that's the case, then there are few false teachers and many sound teachers. But the apostle says there are many rebellious men. The apostle says the opposite. He said many rebellious men. They rebel against what? Uh, and, and whom? The Word of God and the Christ of God. They rebel against both. They are empty talkers. Empty talkers. They put on a good show. They know what to say. As he said in 2 Timothy 3.5, holding to a form of godliness. They hold to a form of godliness it looks good, it seems good, but if you get up close, it doesn't smell good. Hold, uh, although they have denied its power, avoid such as these. So, they're empty talkers with false hope, false promises. Nothing is going to come to fruition, not what they say, because it contradicts the Bible. And they are deceivers. Yes, deceivers. As Christ said, beware of the false prophets who come to you 
in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. They are inwardly ravenous wolves. Matthew 7, 13 to 15. They are ravenous wolves, so they are going to come in deception. 2 Timothy 3, 13. 2 Timothy 3.13, But evil men and impostors will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Satan will not come. He rarely comes and says, Good morning, I am Satan. I'm here to deceive you. He will not do that. He will come as a deceiver by his agents, his instruments, he says in verse 10, especially those of the circumcision. Especially those of the circumcision. Who are the circumcision? The circumcision are the Jews. And the Jewish men who were the teachers. Throughout history, throughout the Old Testament, throughout the New Testament, and since the time of the apostles of the New Testament, even today, if you trace a false doctrine back far enough, you will find that it probably originated nine times out of ten. The false doctrine originated in a Jewish false teacher. Even in academia, even in Christian academia, many of the books that Christian seminarians are reading are authored by liberal Gentiles. And where did the liberal Gentiles learn? Where did they go to university or seminary? They went to their Jewish teachers. And especially if it's on the Old Testament. Because the experts in Hebrew and Aramaic and ancient languages, aside from Greek, they are typically Jewish men teaching Gentile Christians in Jewish institutions if you go back far enough. Not saying that the majority are that way, but we're talking about where did the false doctrine, the false theology, the heresy, where did it originate? Trace it back to a liberal, unbelieving Jew. Not to a believing Jew, not a believing conservative Jew who believes in the Bible, but to the unbelieving one. That's where it will originate, most of the time. That's why... When, what he says here, it may seem like, well, that was just a first century thing. No, it's not a first century thing. It's a historical thing. A historical phenomenon that the Jews are the perpetrators of false doctrine. So what should we do whenever we encounter false doctrine? Well, I'm too busy. Well, I don't know what to say. Well, I'm ill-equipped. Well, I don't want to get into an argument. Well, we're not supposed to argue with people. We're just supposed to love them. We're just supposed to love on them. These cliches are there, right? We're just supposed to love on people. Well, this is love. Right here, verse 11, is love. Who must be silenced because they are upsetting whole families, teaching things they should not teach for the sake of sordid gain. The apostle says they must be silenced. And that is love. Love for whom? To the whole families who are being upset. 
They're being upset. They're being confused. They don't know what to think. They don't know how to live, what to believe, what they're supposed to do, because the false teachers are confusing them, upsetting them. Therefore, the faithful elder, faithful pastor, he must silence the critics, must silence the heretics. Isn't that what Jesus did with the Sadducees and the Pharisees and the Herodians? Whenever they came to him to trip him, to trick him, right, with their questions, what did he do? Did he say, oh, just go home, it's okay, we'll, we'll figure it out, we already know, you, you, are, you, you people already know what you believe, we know what we believe, let's not get into any, any uh, argument here. We don't need to talk about the scripture here, just go, just go ahead, just go ahead, uh, it's okay, we don't need to talk. Does he say that? No, he engages them and refutes them and silences them. He engages them, he refutes them, and he silences them. See Matthew 22 and Mark chapter 12. Matthew 22, Mark 12. That's what happened. Verse 12, Titus 1.12. One of themselves, a prophet of their own, said... Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. Verse 13 says, this testimony is true. The apostle knows, Titus knows, everybody knows that Cretans are notorious. So notorious, we even have an English adjective to describe an unruly, rebellious, wicked person. What is he called? He's called a Cretan. C-R-E-T-A-N, a Cretan. It comes from this word right here, the word for this nation, the island of Crete, because they were so notorious, one of their own prophetic poets said about his own countrymen. So this is not a stranger, a Jew, Paul, some obscurantist from a distant country who has nothing to do with the Cretans, describing them because he has no feelings for them. So he can be harsh and cruel. No, that's not what's happening here. Paul is saying, he's quoting one of their own, Epimenides. His name was Epimenides who made this statement. He says about his own countrymen, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. You couldn't trust your countrymen because they all were lying about everything. He says they're evil beasts. Why does he say evil beasts? Evil beast would be like saying a wild beast. A wild beast is contrary or different from a domestic animal. A domestic animal you can domesticate, you can train to do what the master wants, right? But a wild animal is a wild animal. And he does whatever he wants. And he's very cruel. He's very vicious. He's very bloody. Correct? That's the way a wild animal is. So he's saying that these men are like wild animals, unreasoning animals. They won't listen to anybody. They won't listen to anything. They just do whatever their impulses tell them to do. Lazy gluttons. They won't work but they will surely eat. Is this a sin 
Was it a sin for the philosopher Epimenides to say this about his countrymen? Is it a sin to tell the truth? No. Paul says this testimony is true. He says, Epimenides said it. I say it too. I see it. We all see it. Everybody knows it. It's true. That's the way they are. There's no racism or bigotry happening here. It is the truth, just describing it as it is. So if it is true, what should we do? Leave them alone? Don't engage them? Just say, well, that's the way they are. I'm not going to preach the gospel to them. No, he says in 13, for this cause or this reason, reprove them severely that they may be sound in the faith. You don't leave them alone, but you need to reprove them severely. Notice that word, severely. Severely or harshly. If the human body has cancer, doesn't the surgeon have to deal severely with the cancer to excise it from the body? He cannot put a bandage on it and just give it a kiss and then give the patient a, a lollipop, right? He has to be harsh or severe with the human body to get rid of that disease. It's a terminal disease. He has to get rid of it. So the body has to be treated harshly or severely, painfully. It's going to prick and pain the patient, but it's for his good. That's the intention of the doctor, the surgeon, correct? That's the intention of all of us, especially preachers, when we are reproving those who are rebellious. And what's our goal? That they may be sound in the faith. We want them to be sound in the faith, not unsound. And this sound, the word sound, is not dealing with audible sound. This sound is dealing with bodily sound or health. Good health or bad health. Sound faith, meaning healthy faith, not unhealthy faith that is destructive, but that which is good, wholesome, and adds to longevity. Sound in the faith. Contrary to sound faith is verse 14, not paying attention to Jewish myths and commandments of men. Jewish myths. A myth, anything that contradicts the Bible that is fictitious, that is a fable, like worldly fables, 1 Timothy 4, 7. Worldly fables, that which is fictitious, that which is mythological, will contradict Holy Scripture. Because the Scripture is factual, not fictional. Don't pay attention. Whether it's Jewish myths or German myths, Mexican myths, Indian myths, Chinese myths, it doesn't matter. His immediate concern is Jewish myths. No myth can comport with the Bible. They always contradict. And commandments of men who turn away from the truth. The commandments of men 
the traditions of men undermine the truth, not the commandments of God. A legalist, a Pharisee, is one who believes in the commandments of men, not one who obeys the commandments of God. The one who obeys the commandments of God is godly. The one who obeys the commandments of men, contrary to the commandments of God, he is ungodly, he is lawless, he is a legalist, meaning he subscribes, he adheres to the commandments of men. The commandments of men turn us away from the truth, not the commandments of God. Wicked men, imposters in the church, they are so adept at deception that they are able to use the law of God to impugn the gospel of God, to impugn the attributes of God, and to harm the souls of men. The law of God is intended to do the very opposite, but they are able to use by distorting the law of God to undermine the purposes of God. That shouldn't be the case. Fifteen. Fifteen. There are only two kinds of people. To the pure, all things are pure. What does that mean? To the pure, all things are pure. It would be like when Christ said in Matthew 7, 13 to 29, that a good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. It depends on the nature of the person. If the person is pure, then what he does in faith, whatever is not from faith, is sin. Romans 14, 23. Whatever he does in faith, it is pure. Remember what he also said in 1 Timothy 4 about foods and marriage? 1 Timothy 4, 4 and 5. 1 Timothy 4, 4. For everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with gratitude, for it is sanctified by means of the word of God and prayer. The word of God and prayer, prayer offered in faith, those sanctify the foods so nothing is unclean. And the same here, to the pure, all things are pure. That is, if we have faith, we are regenerated and we're acting on that. But to those who are defiled and unbelieving, there we have the contrast, unbelieving. Defiled, unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their mind and their conscience are defiled. He is teaching that a bad tree produces bad fruit. Or as the Apostle Paul said it in Romans 3, Romans 3, he says, 3.10 to 12, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. That's the unregenerate man, the unbelieving man, the defiled man. Whatever comes out of him, good in a civil sense, but not good in terms of a good work before God, because it's not from a new heart, and it's not in faith. 
So it's not good. Their, their mind and conscience are defiled. And lastly, verse 16 summarizes what he's been saying here throughout the chapter. And Jesus says similar words. Titus 1.16, They profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny Him, being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. Verse 16 is the hypocrite. Jesus is the one who popularized the word in the Bible, hypocrite. He popularized the word. That is, they have a veneer of religion, but in their souls, they are actually vile. They are vile inside, but they have a veneer on the outside of being upright and religious. They are hypocrites. The inner man contradicts the outer man. They profess to know God. I know God. I believe. Don't tell me I'm an unbeliever. But their deeds deny him. If one, like he said in 1 Timothy 5, 8, but if anyone, 1 Timothy 5, 8, does not provide for his own and especially for those of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Yes, many people claim to be believers, and in this case, children and grandchildren not taking care of their, grand, uh, their parents and grandparents as ne necessary, especially in old age. They don't take care of them, but they claim to be believers. No, they're unbelievers. They're denying the faith, and they're worse than unbelievers. So if our actions contradict our announcements then the announcement is a false announcement. We are not true believers. We are detestable before God, disobedient before God, and worthless for any good deed before God. God considers us detestable, despised, loathsome, disobedient, and worthless for any good deed. May we not be like that. May we be as he exhorts us to be. And may we also refute those who contradict. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.